when you buy a business, you've got to think about, is my skill set documentation and, and management? And have I got the time to do this? And if it is, and you do, then you could add a lot of value quite easily. But if that's not you, it's really important to only shop for businesses where the documentation is cleaner and where the, you know, the weekly management time is manageable. And, and you're probably going to pay more money for that as well. Smart e-commerce operators know that net profit is the lifeblood of a business, but at a small and profitable business than a large one which earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook by Jason Miles gives you 17 specific proven profit-taking actions. For a limited time, we are sharing this valuable resource with our listeners completely free. Download your 60-page workbook and start making your business more profitable today. Just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. That's theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. We are Michael Vesey in London, England. Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you could be. We're here to get you there. Let's jump in. Hey folks, today's headline for the um, episode, I've jokingly entitled, Stop, Are You About to Buy a Turkey? And uh, I don't mean it's Christmas and you're buying the food for Christmas. I'm talking about buying a business that you should not be buying. And if you are considering buying a business actively engaged in that, or even selling your own business, you may wish to listen to today's episode with great care. We're talking about the business buying criteria that Jason and I consider when buying a business. And today we're talking about the non-financial factors. So we talked about financial KPIs previously. If you didn't catch that, very, very worth catching. But today we're covering some things that are harder to put a number to, but are equally critical to making sure that you're going to be a happy business owner. So check out the podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Number six is defensibility. Okay. And this is the question of, is there a high quality moat that is going to make this business stand the test of time? And it would likely be either a unique product or a unique uh, approach to the niche that is defensible and not easily replicatable. What, in essence, what you're looking for is, is what some would consider an unfair advantage. You know, it's legal and it's ethical. But, you know, do you have almost like a quasi-monopoly opportunity or some kind of, you know, real unique thing that the business is built upon that you can then continue to manage? Now, some people have unique uh, defensibility because it's a personality-driven brand. You're like, oh, well, this is, you know, Dr. Jim's, you know, remedies or, you know, teachings or whatever. And you, you know, de defensibility associated with uh, uh, personality is a real tough one. But in other categories, you know, it might be, you know, a manufacturing process. It might be IP. You know, I mean, it could it could be a patent, you know, something that you've got that is hard for other people to replicate. Maybe it's a manufacturing process that you know or you have that no one else can, can do easily you know it's just not an easy thing to do but this business that you're looking at has figured it out over the long period and so much so that they're the only ones that pretty much do it you know those types of opportunities go into this whole idea of uh, you know the the defensibility and the quality of the moat of course the reference to moat is warren buffett's phrase and the power of a business that has a long-term 
durable competitive advantage is his thinking on this and he loves businesses that have a moat hmm. yeah i think it's really important i was just thinking about how one actually engineers this for the average sort of amazon sellers that i know or you know they're mostly multi-channel these days they're bigger but it's not easy because we mostly have contract manufacturers, so we don't control the manufacturing side. I, again, yeah. I would just reference CBD, not to sort of bang that drum too much, but something like that that's very awkward. It's not exactly something you uniquely own, but if there's an awkward process to go through to get to the other side of it, I suppose it's what you call a walled garden. It's not exactly a moat, but you and a handful of other players are allowed in. Mm -hmm. So you can still have very strong competitors and that can still be difficult or inadvisable but at least it sort of limits the competition. So I think sometimes yeah. that's a kind of halfway house that's worth considering. Yeah, and we've done whole podcasts about defensibility in business. I think our list is up to like nine factors of defensibility, and I've done whole trainings on that. It yeah. is hard to engineer. I mean, yeah. that's why it's that's why those businesses are valuable. And yeah. They stand yeah, yeah. the test of time, and yeah. they're worth a lot. And they are attractive to people. And once they are, you know, established, they are difficult to sell and people don't want to sell them because yes. they know they've got the goose that's laying a golden egg. And, mm. you know, so, I mean, I think that's a key, key consideration. Now, I would just say this, every business has a degree of defensibility. And so just think of it like a, on a scale of zero to 10, how defensible is it? And if it's a, you know, six, seven, eight, or nine, or 10, you're like, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing. Well, if it's a one, two, three, or four, you're like, anybody in the brother can start this business and compete with me. There's no barrier to entry. There's no novelty. There's no way in which I can defend this in terms of manufacturing or creation of the item. There's just a huge amount of risk associated with the defensibility of the business. And fair enough, but there are a lot of companies that thrive in that kind of climate and you know you just have to you understand it and really think through you know what you're buying i think what you just said is really really critical that people if anyone could compete there's no barrier to entry and there's no novelty there's a lot of risk associated with that business i think you're absolutely right and i think the reason that that's not blindingly obvious to anyone who's sold particularly on amazon again but you know more generally in e-commerce in the last decade is really that the markets have grown so fast, particularly up to, you know, really COVID and the year afterwards, only really now that people are beginning to see how dangerous that is. I mean, we've all experienced, you know, launching a product and then somebody else taking over the space and trashing the the price of it, actually. So that's not really, that's not really true, actually. We've mostly seen the risk of that. But I think mm -hmm. the level of how bad that is is only becoming clear now as the market growth mm -hmm. is slowing down to some degree in certain markets. So I think yep. it's absolutely critical. If you cannot create a barrier, you don't have to buy it with a barrier wrapped all the way around it. But if you can't add that fairly quickly, and obviously, I think you're absolutely right. I think you should just walk away. Uh, yeah. I think you're completely yeah. right. And it's interesting too, because I was in a slightly different context than what we're talking about. But I was listening to the All In podcast recently. I love that one. And David Sachs is the master of software as a service uh, investing. He's a venture capitalist that focuses on that industry and we you know michael we have omni rocket pro tools for amazon sellers so we're in that space as well kyle and i and we bought that business and rebranded it the but his commentary the, the the basic thesis that he was debating with the other show hosts was whether SaaS businesses actually are defensible 
because in the age where engineering in in coding is becoming a commoditized product, even so much that ChatGPT and tools like it can write the code, then the question is, is it marketplaces that are splintered into a million sellers competing for one million customers? (laughs) Wow, each of us will get one customer. You know, and so, so that, it, you know, the question there is, is, is even SaaS, are SaaS businesses defensible? And his comment was, maybe they're not, well, oh, I'll paraphrase in general how the conversation went. He, his comment was, yes, true. Maybe there is a lot of ability for people to compete. However, when you're in a business like that, if you do get um, traction in that niche, power laws take effect. And you can become winner take most it with SaaS businesses. It, you, you know, you can create the de facto SaaS tool for a niche or industry. And if that happens, of course, then that's the moonshot and you, you know, you get rich, but you got to ask the same questions for the business that you're looking at. Can it be defensible? Can it be a winner take all or winner take most scenario? And do I have the ability to defend it from others who will try to enter the space? So you get the idea there. Any final thoughts on that one? Yeah, definitely. I, I think really, although I'm not a SaaS business owner, I'm, unlike yourself, obviously spoken to it on the pod, podcast. And I've seen over the years what's happened. And I think the same thing applies to physical products. If you have a, a niche, which is small enough to dominate without being you know, a conglomerate with incredible amounts of dollars behind you, and you dominate it, then you can become very wealthy. So I know Greg Mercer mm-hmm. a little bit. I never spoke to Money Coats, but I know both those guys sold. So mm-hmm. Jungle Scout got sold. I know that uh, Helium 10 got sold. And they are the de facto duopoly, a little bit like Airbus and Boeing in, in the airliner world, right? There's the odd, uh, other thing, mm-hmm. but not really a significant share of the market. And those are the, the two Goliaths in the space. And so they've done very, very well from that. And I think the same thing applies the commoditized nature of manufacturing, I think the same thing, actually, although I've seen that obviously quite a few years ago with the Amazon game, I guess the commoditization of coding is something I'm less familiar with, obviously not being a developer, but I, it's, it feels like the same dynamic applies actually. Yeah. And the, what you're describing there a little bit is this, this concept and defensibility is that you're looking for a niche that's so small that you can be the king of the castle, but it's a very small castle. And that concept I write about in the e-commerce uh, power book, but that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a niche that other people who are big players would say, nah, that's too small. We don't want to, we don't even want to mess with that niche. It's just too, too, too small a com- user community. And if the, if the, you know, the total user community for, you know, a certain product or service or SaaS tool or whatever is just not appealing to most people and no one has installed themselves as a king of that small castle, then yeah, that's the kind of niche you're probably looking for. Because you just add, that, add it's a, an element of defensibility is would other people just go right past and say, these aren't the droids we're looking for. You know, <laughs> yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't want to go in there. Well, f- great. I'm glad you think that I'm happily in there being the king of the castle or whatever, you know? I would just add the nuance to that. I agree with everything you say. I think dominating a niche is absolutely critical, followed by desirable, highly desirable, if you want to get really rich, is having a niche that is expanding fast. So it's back to the Boston Consulting Group matrix, I'm afraid. It's just, yep. 
market leadership is a sine qua non. If you don't have market leadership, you are really asking for trouble if you buy that business or try and expand that business if you're the current owner. If you do have market leadership and you're in a static niche, it's going to be a cash cow, which is a great thing to have and is quite valuable because it's not very common in e-commerce, all the things we just discussed. But if you have a start business that is you dominate a small category, but that is growing, one day it may be very, very valuable. This, for example, Jungle Scout, I think when they got started, it was, I think, 2016, 2015, and third-party selling on Amazon was fairly small. Now there are, I believe, several million people registered with Amazon, and the percentage of those that use Jungle Scout is probably pretty pretty high. I don't know what it is, 20%, maybe it's just 10%. It, it's, it's a lot of people. So I think the critical thing is that the niche can be small, yeah. and then hopefully you pick a growing one. Mm-hmm. But most important is niche leadership. And I think people overlook that every single day of the week. They go on yeah. about the absolute value of a, of a niche. And I, mm-hmm. if somebody says, oh, look, there's $5 million a month being made in this niche in Amazon, quite common in the US. And I look at their numbers and they've got 1% of that market. I'm going to run for the hills. I have no yeah. interest in that at all. Yeah. I think if you want to go deeper on this topic, the best book that I can think of is Positioning by Al Reese and Jack Trout. And then their other books are like the what's it called? What's the title? It's not Battle for the Mind, but it's similar to that. But Al Reese and Jack Trout, Positioning is the central book. And then they have others yeah. that are similar that help you define the basic core ideas. If you're not number one in your niche, create a new niche and be number yes. one in the new new niche. So there you go. But anyway, let's move on. Um, I think we beat that one to death. Um, yeah. But I think it's okay. worth beating to death because you got <laughs> that wrong. everything else yes. goes horribly wrong. I don't think it's important. I think it's, it's the, the thing, central. to be honest. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. There you go. However, yes, we've beaten that to death. So okay. well, I guess we're playing the next one already, right? So let's so, punch number, number seven. Yeah, number seven is risk. Yeah. And, and the idea here is, is the business you're acquiring got a single point of failure that you can see or on, in your diligence process find out about? Those might be things like legal risk, supplier risk. It might be key employee risk. You know, maybe you're buying a business, got a key employee, they leave and the whole thing's down the toilet. You know, those risks are really, really important to think through. And there are many such things, but I I think that's a really, really important thing. Are you buying a steady state business that can be easily continued on, even at a plateau level where you're like, well, I'm not ruining it, but I'm not 10x in it either, but I'm buying it and it's continuing to work. And that might feel like a victory, you know? And that level of risk that you're taking on, I think, is a real central thing. Because at the end of the day, what you're betting on, the, the risk calculation is, can you remove the current owner? This is sort of obvious, but it's true. Can you remove the current owner, insert yourself, and not damage the business? <laughs> you know, that's the core question that really risk you know, uh, hinges on. Yeah, that's the big gamble you're taking. And can you give them a lot of money for the opportunity to do that, <laughs> you know? I think that's an excellent question. And it, you're kind of laughing as you say it as if it's really obvious, but it's easy to overlook because somehow, unless you're incredibly experienced at buying businesses, you know, it's not obvious what it is you're buying. In fact, it's a mm-hmm. system that works without a certain person in it. And obviously the key employee risk for a lot of small businesses, certainly the ones I've seen change hands is simple. Like the key employee is the owner slash operator of the business. And the question is, not so much can you operate day to day because Amazon particularly does a lot for you. Shopify does quite a bit for you, depending on how your 3PL set up and so forth. We all use a lot of third party services, right? One way or the other. 
But if the owner of the business is the person who comes up with the product roadmap and understanding of the consumer, and you don't have that, and you don't have a, a way of recreating that, your business is not, to your point, a steady state. I don't think there's such a thing in Amazon. I think it's going to shrink as other yeah. people take over the market. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to shrink and die. So I think that key employee risk is really about who's going to drive the, the growth factors of the business. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easy to overlook that. Because an Amazon business does not have the value in the product. It really has value in somebody who can come up with the next product and set up the whole painful process of getting suppliers and getting the the first terrible sample and the second sample that's okay but mm-hmm. disappointing and the third sample that's good and then iterating. You know, that that's a huge skill set. And if you have that, okay. And if you don't, again, I just don't think you can buy the business and make it work, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think fair enough. I, I think I don't remember who to attribute the quote to, but somebody I remember saying, "If you're not growing, you're dying. There is no, there is no real plateauing. It's you are either you know declining or you're advancing." And so, when you buy that business, that's going to be the big question: is it gonna, is it gonna decline, 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 mm. maybe slowly, but nonetheless, sure. or is it gonna increase in advance? And that's the you're betting on yourself in a way. Yeah, I think you know, so. that's the the risk you're taking is the risk of your skill and ability at the end of the day, you know, mm. married married to this new thing. The only nuance I'd add to that is that you may, as part of your acquisition process, have a team of people or have handpicked somebody to put in as a general manager who has got maybe mm-hmm. 20 years experience of growing fast moving right. consumer goods and importing from China or something. And in which case, they are key employee risk, not the current employees, but mm-hmm. the new one. So you're going to make sure that they're really tied in, that they're really good, yep. that you're going to incentivize them properly. Maybe they give them a, a percentage of the equity or so forth. So that's another way of looking at it. We'll only really work with a bigger business that's got enough profit to be able to pay for that. But that, that's another option. Totally right. Okay. So we've got two left to go. So let's get into them. So the eighth idea is management requirement. Mm-hmm. And the question here is, can you own it? and manage it uh, at a high level or do you have to actually operate in it day to day as the technician baking the cake you know cutting the flowers packaging the whatever you know are you buying an asset that you can own and operate as a legit you know kind of business level owner or are you buying a job and that is a huge question yeah it is a lot of people don't think about this and i think that there's nothing wrong with buying a job but it's really important to recognize you're probably buying a full-time job, which if you've already got some part-time work you're doing, even if you sold a business, but you're doing some other stuff. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60-page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. I know you might have real estate interests. A lot of people do, you know, property. You've really got to be realistic about how much work it will take. And related to that is how well documented is the business. Now, this is another, I like your cut versus uncut diamonds 
idea a lot because it kind of clarifies the two different markets, I guess, right? I, I don't mm-hmm. deal in diamonds, but I would expect to spend, you know, two or $3,000 or whatever upwards for a diamond ring that's cut, that's set, that's whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But an uncut diamond, I guess, works in different, different types of metrics. And the same is true for an undocumented business. You can add a lot of value to a business by documenting it, cleaning it up, and getting good employees in place. But you've got to recognize the amount of work that will be. Mm-hmm. And again, when you buy a business, you've got to think about, is my skill set documentation and, and management? And have I got the time to do this? And if it is, and you do, then you could add a lot of value quite easily. But if that's not you, it's really important to only shop for businesses where the documentation is cleaner. And whether, you know, the weekly management time is manageable and, and you're probably going to pay more money for that as well because it's a cut diamond, not an uncut one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing to think through. And, you know, to your point, it's not bad or wrong to buy a job. That job better look like senior leadership though, you know, and, or, or else, you know, you're buying something just smaller and any, but the question is then how do you grow it to the point where you're the leader? and you're doing the hardest things, what's the highest and best use of your time? I would say the highest things in a business are usually the financial and legal related, product design related, maybe those three areas. People usually nerd out, get really good. The operators that I've seen that are the best are either insanely great product makers. And Elon Musk even says he spends 80% of his time across all his companies on tough engineering challenges, which is product design. By the way, it's amazing. A it's lot amazing of the world that would agree that. that he really should spend probably 95% of his time on that and leave the PR <laughs> to somebody else. An example, he's a genius, clearly, and wealthy, but nevertheless, an example recently of sticking to what you're really good at yeah. is a good plan. Yeah. So if you're a product guy, then you yeah. probably should be hiring somebody to do PR. Yeah. And uh, equally, if, if like me, you're attracted to the deal and the sort of financial analysis, I'm not claiming to be amazingly good at that, but it attracts yeah. me. I, I'm, I'm hungry to learn more. I'm talking about passion. Whereas I'm not hungry to develop more private label products. I've done that. I know some of what's involved and therefore I'd, I'd know that it's a really critical job, that it's really hard, that I'd have to pay somebody decent money for it. But that's definitely something I would want to find somebody to grow the business. And yeah, to yeah. your point, you need to be super clear about the costs as well as the upside of that. Yeah, and totally. If the business can't afford to pay for that person, but it's critical and it's not you, then I wouldn't buy that business, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally right. Okay. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. The, the last one is, and number nine is, is it financeable or financeability? Now, this question is, I think, central for a lot of aspects of the, the, the concept of buying the business. The first one being, can you actually get a loan to buy this business or, or not? Would the seller finance it to you? I guess that's a, a form of financeability if they're willing to, to finance the, the sale. But will it, would a banker you know, or a lender look at the business on it, on its merits, on its financials and say, yep, here's the pile of money because this makes a ton of sense. Or would they say, mm, no, this has got real, real red flags and problems. And I think it's important to find out about that and go through that process. Even like, even, even for example, if, if you could buy it with cash, or you could buy it and the, and the seller would finance it. I think it's valuable to go through the process of uh, the, you know, having it evaluated by a banker, maybe try to get an SBA loan or something like that, because mm-hmm. the, the, that process will reveal to you information that that's a third party vetting and yeah. validation. It's third party voice. So you can get out of your head and, and not just talk yourself into a bad deal. You know, if you have somebody who's the, 
the loan officer say, here's the three problems that we had. So we're declining the loan. Yeah. And that'll tell you something, you know? And I, I think that's really helpful. Yeah. So Hit the, the trouble with the whole business opportunity thing, and I, I'm totally, you know, a victim of this is that the sort of people that want to run a business want to be the boss. But the trouble with having no bosses, you know, who, who watches the watches, I mean, the answer is often nobody and that's often not good. So to your point, you're basically getting free business coaching. It's pretty tough. I can tell you from some conversations with lenders, they can be pretty blunt and they're very fact-based. So it can be even more kind of painful because it's a bit cold dissection rather than yeah. uh, a blunt fight, which can kind of be fun in a way that you can learn, love to hate, or you can have a very gentle, loving yeah. kind of rejection by your coach. They'll normally say, yeah, this we don't lend on this kind of business because this type of risk, this type of risk, yep. this type of risk. And you go away going, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Mm -hmm. So it's really valuable. I 100% I back what you're saying. If you can't get financing for something, it doesn't mean you shouldn't buy it, but it does mean you should deep dive into the things they've kindly red flagged for you, in my opinion, yeah. because people ignore risk. Like, you know, being aware of risk is somehow amateurish or not entrepreneurial. I entirely disagree. You take someone like Richard Branson, who is the quintessential entrepreneur in Britain. He's started so many businesses. And he's always, when you, when you hear him talk, he's not even a particularly loud kind of guy. He's quite nerdy and analytical. And he looks for ways to de-risk the deal mm -hmm. all the time. For example, when he started Virgin Atlantic, he leased the planes. He didn't buy them that he was going to use from Boeing such that if it didn't work out, he'd just hand them back as opposed to have an extremely expensive asset now declining in, in value that he'd yeah. have to get rid of. So that's an example. So I, I think it's just professional to look at the, the issues and come up with solutions. And you're right. Finances are great at doing that. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I think this, this is helpful on the ideas associated with buying a business. It's also, I think, revealing in terms of your ability to potentially sell it on in the future. You know, can you sell it to somebody else? Because the way in which you buy it is probably the way in which you'll have to sell it. If you buy a business, then the only way you're going to get the done, deal done is if you give all cash for it. Then, you know, is the question is then why, why was that required? And will that be the same set of facts when you want to be the one selling it in the future? And so I think it's an interesting question. You know, if you were going to sell it in three years or five years or 10 years, would you have to finance it? Would a bank say no if a, yeah. another seller was uh, or another buyer was going to come in and try to buy it from you? you know, what would materially have changed. And so you want to think through that because you don't want to be in a situation where you're like, gosh, I can't get rid of this thing. Yeah. You know? So two points to that. I mean, one is um, that it's even more important that it's financeable when you sell it, because hopefully the whole idea, I guess, is that you would buy it in order to grow the value and sell it for a higher valuation. The higher the valuation, the more likely there's going to be finance involved at some point. I mean, even billionaires don't tend to have a lot of cash in the bank because it's not a very good asset class. So they often borrow money as well, uh, let alone, you know, more smaller buyers. So yep. that's really important. The other way I would flip that on its head, instead of saying, mm, will this be financeable in future? I would work on the business to engineer it such that it is financeable. So if it hasn't got any mm -hmm. hard assets, mm -hmm. there could be a case, for example, for buying some property through the business in order to have an asset class within the business that makes it financeable because mm -hmm. that will make it so much easier to sell. Plus, it means the book value is a bit more solid. So if your inventory suddenly all goes out of date because you can't sell it for love nor money, you still got something in the business that gives it some book value and, and means you can get some loans as well. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for educating yourself about the balance sheet side of life, particularly if you deal with digital assets. I guess one is very profit and loss uh, focused. 
if you buy and sell physical goods, you really should think about the assets and the cash flow. But when it comes to loans, lenders, again, talking to your point about getting a different view of things from the lender's side of things, lenders are obsessed with assets and balance mm-hmm. sheets. I've mm-hmm. noticed that. So that way of engineering a business with a strong balance sheet for the future, such that it can be financed in, you know, in order to acquire it, yeah. is a really great objective to have, I think. Yeah, love it. Okay, man, this is such a great conversation. I really think this marries up well to the episode we did uh, previous to this one, all about the KPIs, financial metrics associated with buying a business. I think between the two, you've got a really, really holistic list of things to look into as you're thinking about buying a business. And it's fun to work through the list. You're actively working on deal opportunities. Cinnamon and I are actively working on deal opportunities. And it's just a great set of of questions to ask ourselves so that we do good deals and make wise choices in the process and don't Mm. put ourselves in a position to have a lot of regrets. I'll say the only, you know, deal making stuff that I want to regret is the one that got away. I never want to have a regret about the one that I actually did. That was a real huge mistake. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's interesting. I, I sort of basically an accounting type background, although he's got a lot of different strings to his bow. And he said that a friend of his, this is a warning of where it can go wrongly. A friend of his basically had a kind of country estate. They used to get down to the Formula One races and the helicopter. They had quite a rich lifestyle. And that all went away because he acquired a business that the accountant had basically said there was some tax write-offs. It was a somewhat distressed business that had a lot of debt. And it turned out that, of course, in the end, to, to boil it down to a nutshell, which is a terrible mix of metaphors, mm-hmm. that the guy became personally liable for the very more substantial debts than he'd realized of this business, and he lost his country estate and the helicopter rise and so forth. They had to rebuild. Wow. So that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a scary one. And another one I've come across, that an actor that I used to work with and back in the days when I was a musician, I coached him on the piano for a TV series. It was a very strange job. But anyway, because he, he, you know, celebrities know some rich people sometimes, and he knew a guy who bought a Premier League football club, which is like the top of the soccer mm-hmm. league here, that got relegated. In other words, it was no longer mm-hmm. top of the league, and he went from being worth plus sixty million pounds, so whatever, seventy-five million bucks, to yeah. minus fifteen because he earned some oh. of the money. <laughs> of so course, buying a soccer school, buying a soccer club is probably a bad idea. <laughs> well, Ryan Reynolds just bought the ones that were our, the one Wrexham that was relegated already, and then he turned yeah. to Netflix. Now uh, that's the way to do it. it. Yeah, do it the other <laughs> way around is obviously good. <laughs> well, I suppose what I'm saying is that, that risk mitigation is always yeah. important for all entrepreneurs, but when you're buying a business, it's really, really important. And I think yeah. again, it's not about being negative. That's that's just a, a naive mm-hmm. way of looking at it, in my opinion. Like the people that make really great money are incredibly street smart and believe in the potential for growth. Otherwise, they wouldn't buy a business, right? So I think it's it's both. It's not being scared. It's having a mindset of growth, but nevertheless, by avoiding the landmines, yeah. you can get to where you want. And so, yeah, I think this is a really important way of, of thinking that I don't think is that common either. So hopefully we've woken people up to a few things. Yeah, I've got a 10th one that I'm not going to add, but I'll tease it out like this. Contact us through our contact forms on the ecommerceleader.com or for me, omnirocket.com and ask me about the 10th non-financial factor for evaluating. There's a huge one that, that, that is a big deal and I'll just leave it as a tease if anybody wants to ask me privately. And there's a reason I don't want to share it publicly as well because it'll be a little bit too revealing, but I'm happy to share it with people one-on-one 
I know that's a tease, but happy to chat cool. with you because if you're into buying businesses or building your business, we want to talk to you anyway about our consulting and done for you services, et cetera, et cetera, at Omni Rocket. So I'll leave that as sort of a, a hanging offer there. Nice tease. I like it. If you are considering selling your own Amazon business or you're considering buying one, which isn't so common, but people are starting to approach you for that, you can go to myamazonaudits.com and book in a, a chat to me if you want to have a look, specifically Amazon-based ones, because that's what I know about. I'm not saying you should limit your hunting to that, but that's where I can help best. Nice. Jason's been fun. This is, it's just, I find what's great about this is intellectually a uh, fascinating game. There are so many things to consider. Yeah. And balance out. And it is also very personal. I, I think, you know, what you, is so interesting talking off camera, as it were, to you, the way you look at it, the way you buy is quite different to me. And that's, that's rightly so because everyone has their own skill sets and their own mindset. So it's a fun game. I would encourage everyone to, to really educate themselves about it. Absolutely. All right. Let me wrap up with just a final summary of the nine things. Number one, passion. Number two, durability. Number three, niche strength. Number four, brand power. Number five, opportunity. Number six, defensibility. Number seven, risk. Number eight, management requirement. And number nine, financeability. There you have it. Quick recap. And thanks so much, man, for great conversation this time. As always, if you're liking the podcast, be sure to check us out on your player of choice and leave us your highest review and rating in whatever form they allow. Those are really helpful. On Apple, it's a proper review. Apple Podcasts on uh, Spotify, things just like a star or whatever. But in any format, we'd appreciate your feedback. That helps us get better and better at um, helping you be an awesome e-commerce leader, which is the goal of the show. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60-page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. That was the E-Commerce Leader podcast with Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. We offer you free help on our website, including PDFs, videos, and mini courses on topics like traffic, products, and sales channels. Some are for Amazon, most are for any sales channel. To get those and to stay up to date with our podcasts, go to www.theecommerceleader.com. Thanks for listening.